Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. My name is Nathaniel Worley, and today I'm sitting down with conservation photographer and environmental social scientist, Dr. Gabby Salazar. Gabby, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to speak with you. Thanks for having me. So first, I would like to start by asking a bit about your your upbringing. Um, I know I, I saw in a reading online, um, you got your first camera at 11. Um, how did that come about? And when you started taking photos, um, well, I, I guess, could you start by seeing like where you're from and maybe how that environment around you kind of shaped your interest in, in like taking photos of, of more of the natural world as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in rural North Carolina, um, outside of outside of a city, and uh, luckily we had a lot of land around my, you know, undeveloped land, forests around my house where I grew up. And my dad was an amateur photographer and gave me a camera when I was 11 years old and took me out to a friend's backyard bird garden uh, where they, you know, put out bird seed and bird feeders. And I started photographing these backyard birds, like bluebirds and blue jays. And I was just totally hooked. Uh, you know, the camera really focused my attention on wildlife in a way that I had not paid, you know, I think attention as deeply before looking through the lens. I'd always been interested in playing outside, but hadn't learned as much about natural history. And that was a real turning point for me because I started getting interested in the art of photography. And art was really an entry point into learning more about nature and, you know, the rest is history kind of. And so that first camera, could you tell me what, what type of camera was it? What sort of lens did it have? I'm imagining some sort of like a telephoto lens probably. Yeah, it was a telephoto lens. So it was a Nikon camera and we borrowed a big lens for me to use that day. And so I was able to see, I remember really distinctly able to see like the details and the bird's feathers and the eye of the bird. And for anybody that's ever even looked through binoculars for the first time at a bird, that can be a really big transformative moment because, you know, an animal goes from being kind of this abstract moving um, color to something with details and personality and and really, um, you know, artistic beauty. And so that was a that was a big thing for me was just getting that tool and seeing how that tool could transform my understanding of and relationship with nature. Could you tell me about, um, I imagine you probably had some times where you were just kind of staking out in your backyard for hours at a time, waiting for like a bird or an animal to appear, camera in hand, did that ever happen? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, wildlife, you know, you can't just walk up to it, right? You really have to, for the most part, you really have to be patient. And I think that was a big thing for me when I was starting photography. Not only did I have to be patient in terms of waiting for animals, but I had to be patient because at that point I was shooting film. And every time I clicked the shutter, it essentially cost about 25 cents. And my family didn't grow up with a lot of money. And I had to be really careful about how many images I took. And so I, it taught me patience in a lot of ways. I did spend a lot of time when I was a teenager, actually, in Texas, in South Texas, um, working with this wonderful group that was trying to 
connect photographers and conservationists with large ranch owners. And using the power of photography to help document biodiversity on these ranches. And the idea being that, you know, ranch owners would take pride in the amount of biodiversity they had on their ranches because the photographers would help reveal that biodiversity. And I would spend six hours, eight hours sometimes in a blind waiting for a bobcat to come or waiting for you know, a painted bunting, this beautiful, colorful bird that looks like crayons have been melted and you know spread all over its wings. It's just gorgeous. And so, yeah, I spent a lot of time waiting around for wildlife. And in doing so, I think I really got to know a lot more about other parts of nature. So there are two points I kind of want to touch on from that. One is the biodiversity aspect. But first, I wanted to ask, um, you started with a film camera. Um, kind of two questions from that. At what point did you decide to make the switch to digital? Um, and what are your thoughts on um, kind of with with film, it's like the cost as well as like um, you can't immediately see the photo obviously as well. Um, but now with digital, there's kind of the idea with nature photography of um, like spray and pray where you take a ton of photos um, and you're hoping that at least one, two, three of them are going to be that shot that you want, as opposed to kind of just being more hopeful. Um, you're just waiting for that perfect moment. Um, what are your thoughts on, on, on that? Yeah, great questions. Um, I transitioned to digital, I think, when I was around 16 or 17 years old. And I think digital photography is an extraordinary learning tool. I mean, we're able to just take photos, look immediately, respond, adjust the exposure. And so I absolutely love it for teaching. I do think it can make us less thoughtful as photographers, right, as practitioners of photography. I took a workshop a couple of years ago with the Missouri School of Photojournalism. It was an extraordinary workshop that taught storytelling. And they had a rule as part of the workshop where you could only take X number of photos for your storytelling assignment. And they would look at the sequential image file name or numbers to make sure that you didn't exceed. And I think it was 300 or 400 images. And they did that to make us much more intentional about when we clicked the shutter button. And I think photographers should try to practice imposing those kind of limits so that we really do think about what we're including in the frame and why we're taking a photo. And sort of to continue on that idea of, of patience as well, um, how have you used sort of um, ideas learned from photography, kind of like that idea of patience um, in other aspects of, of your professional career or just your daily life? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think one of my biggest learning experiences over the past 10 years has been about the power of collaboration to bring about projects. And I say that because I think at the beginning of my career, when I was first starting out, when I graduated from college, most of my projects were undertaken as an individual, right? I was writing an individual grant. I was going out and just taking photos and trying to publish them. And I really learned over time that collaborating with others, whether it's other photographers or 
other scientists or people from other disciplines really could extend the impact of the work that I did. But along with that, I had to learn patience and really practice patience because it's a lot easier to just forge ahead if you're the sole you know, director of a project. But when you're trying to incorporate other people's ideas, especially creative artistic ideas into a project, it takes a lot more time and it takes a lot of patience and it takes a lot of listening skills. And so that's been a really transformative learning experience for me and something that I encourage um, students I work with or you know other photographers to pursue is to, to, to really think about how collaboration can accelerate or amplify the impact of the work that they're doing. So before we began this interview, um, you emphasize that you sort of have like some different hats you wear. Um, I'm curious, what identities would you say you feel most strongly tied to? That's a great question. Uh, so yeah, so I, you know, I just finished my um, PhD about seven, eight months ago, and I went back to school because I got really curious about whether or not my environmental photographs were having an impact. You know, um, I, I identify as a conservation photographer, and that means that I use the images I create to try to further conservation causes, whether it's by partnering with conservation organizations, working on campaigns, um, having targeted and strategic communications that are seeking to change a behavior or change a policy. Um, I really try to use photography as a tool to advance conservation. So conservation photographer is one of them. But now I also identify as um, an environmental social scientist. And that's because I went back to school to try to understand how to evaluate the impact of these campaigns and these projects. And I really learned um, a lot of different, I have a lot more tools in my toolbox now, right? Because I've learned how to do research, how to create surveys, how to um, produce education materials and evaluate their effectiveness. And so those are my two main identities. But, you know, I think if we're curious and creative people, we're constantly evolving in our identities as we take on new tools um, or take on new projects and um, just try to expand uh, the kind of breadth and depth of our work. I'd like to shift a bit to um, hear about some of your time in uh, spend in the field as well. Um, more so a few things like, have you had that dreaded SD card loss or file corruption? Um, or has there, there been a moment in the field where um, since you, you work not just with people, but um, close to animals as well, um, has there been kind of a scary wildlife moment that you've encountered um, where you get too close with your camera perhaps, or you, you're on a long hike and you are exhausted, you slip or something? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. You know, um, for being a, a person who spends a lot of time in the field, as you said, like often camping, often in extreme environments. I'm a pretty, I'm pretty risk averse as an individual. And so, um, you know, knock on wood, I haven't had um, too many scary experiences. I've been very lucky, I think. Part of that is that I think wild, wild animals, for the most part, are more scared of you than you are of them. 
And so, you know, keeping a respectful distance and um, making sure uh, that you aren't encroaching on their space is a is a good way um, to to stay safe. Um, but I've certainly had some like you know icky kind of moments in the field, and you know one of those that comes to mind is um, just working in the jungles of Southeast Asia. Um, I was in Borneo, and um, something I really don't like are leeches. And there, you don't just have leeches in the water, you actually have forest leeches in the jungle. And so, um, you know, I, I would climb these mountains and I would do everything right. I had leech socks, which are actually something you can buy online that kind of tuck, you know, they're longer um, and they kind of tuck in and they have little like bungees around them to make sure the leeches can't get into your pants. And I, you know, tucked my shirt in. And when I got down from this all day hike, I looked down um, at my stomach and it was just absolutely covered in leeches. And and they they you know they do put in what like kind of a um, they have something in their bite that makes the blood keep flowing, right? And so it was really hard to staunch all of the the blood dripping. And when you're camping, that's not a very pleasant experience to have. <laughs> but I would go back in a heartbeat. So, yeah. And. Another thing about field work as well, um, this this will tie into a, a follow-up question as well, but um, as photo tech and and just tech in general, I mean, even with like, like backpacking, um, hiking, all of that, um, improvements to like fabrics and everything like that um, have improved. Um, what do you think the role of tech in wildlife is now? Um, there was a video I saw this morning that was, um, a bit silly. I think it was, um, I don't think it was Nat Geo. I think it may have been BBC or, or some other company. Um, it was a dung camera, um, to get up close to elephants. Um, that was like, it was a robotic camera covered in dung, um, that would just roll up to the elephants. Um, and then would, uh, it had additional cameras that were a little, like dung balls that could roll down even closer. Um, and I thought that was all, <laughs> it just seems a bit odd. Like even if it does get to, to the purpose of like getting that close documentation of, of these animals without having that human interaction element as well as explicit. Um, it just seems a bit silly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I haven't heard of that one. I mean, that's an interesting, that's an interesting, uh, approach. I guess on, on the one hand, it does, you know, allow you to get photos without potentially disturbing the animal's behavior as much, which is a big concern. I mean, ethics and wildlife photography, I mean, we could have a whole conversation about that. Um, but, you know, I think ultimately when I teach photography, my big takeaway message is the best camera is the one you have with you and you can create compelling images with any equipment that you have, including your phone. And so it's really about the artist and not the tech and the gear. Um, you know, I do a lot of photography in remote places. I'm a rather petite person and I can only carry so much. So I actually have a pretty um, minimalist kit that I take with me. Usually one camera, three lenses and my phone and a small tripod. And if I'm doing video, you know, there's some other things that I take like audio recording, but I try to keep it pretty simple because ultimately I want to be just like focused on trying to get 
the photo with what I have rather than thinking about which of 19 lenses or little gadgets do I need to take a photo. Um, but I certainly think, you know, we do need, especially when we're doing conservation photography work and we're trying to capture people's attention, you know, we do need to be able to take new perspectives and show things in new and exciting ways. And so there is this balance where sometimes tools can help us create a storytelling image that we would not otherwise be able to take just with our camera in our hands. So in terms of the storytelling aspect of photographs as well, um, since you use your photography as a means of um, kind of helping people see certain things going on with the world or help influence in some way decision-making processes. Um, what makes a compelling photograph to you in terms of like a photograph that tells a story? What, what might that include? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think, I think some things that I think about, some themes that I think about when I think about storytelling images are like um, images that show a relationship or some type of tension, right? Um, images that have layers and complexity to them. I mean, obviously you still want all of those elements to be harmonious, right? You want them it to be a beautiful image as well, even if it's showing complex things. Um, images that um, say something about the context or the environment where um, an action or a story is unfolding. Um, these are all kind of elements that are a little harder you know, than just you know, creating a, a beautiful image of an animal or a plant or a person um, because they require some thought and planning and they also require all of these, you know, you know, often complicated situations to come together in a pleasing visual, like single image. But that's what I'm really thinking about when I think about storytelling images. Mm. Yeah, and one of your photographs that comes to mind as well um, that uh, our listeners can also see on, on Gabby's website is... Um, a photo of a snake under um, a deck and it's a photograph at night and you can see in the background there's a man sitting at a table or a desk or some sort. Um, and I quite like that photograph because I, I think it kind of has that aspect of um, like tension in, in some way as well. Um, yeah, okay, let's see. What question do I want to ask now? So, Going off the theme of tech still, um, I'm curious your thoughts on AI usage in photography. Um, and I, I was thinking about Photoshop as well, how initially when Photoshop rolled out, I think there was a lot of criticism in terms of um, both usage by artists generally, but also kind of an idea of um, like, you're not as much of a photographer if you use Photoshop or, um, now I think that same dialogue is is being used with AI, where it's like like you can take this photo and then you want it to be sunset, but there you have it. Um, so does that would you say make someone less of a photographer or less of an artist in some way? The usage of AI with this sort of um, or AI or Photoshop generally with this sort of photography type that you do as well, wildlife photography. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Well, I think that there. I think that there's different 
purposes for photography and those and maybe types of photography and that's important to distinguish. So when we're talking about photojournalism, you know, which is really trying to in ultimately capture truth um, and obviously that's, you know, truth from the eye of the the photographer in a way because we can choose how to frame images and how to how to display situations. But, you know, that's a place where AI really doesn't have a have a place, right? And 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 I think when we're talking about art and fine art, there's a place where I, you know AI can have a place. Um, I think you know people can use AI as a creative tool, just like Photoshop and just like you know um, manipulating kind of a, a a scene if you're setting up a photograph like a studio shot. I mean. It's just another tool in our toolbox. I think the real critical thing that we're gonna have to be strict about going forward is truth and captioning. How do we caption our images so that people know when this is a situation that's been you know, digitally manipulated or it's a situation that is actually showing what happened out in the world. And so that's something that we as individual artists need to be conscious of when we're putting our images on social media or out in the world. But it's also something that news agencies and um, you know press agencies are going to have to be uh, really cautious of in photo competitions, you know, making sure that they're being kind of diligent in ensuring that they know how those images were created. It's going to be complicated. It's a it's a whole new world in a way. Yeah, I, and I think to dig a little deeper on that question as well, um, I think I remember reading on on your website as well, or um, it may have been elsewhere, um, and I've had this experience as well where there's something I want to photograph, and I see it, and it looks a certain way. I take a photo of it. It looks a different way. Um, in terms of in that context as well, even within photojournalism itself, um, if the camera isn't able to create the image that your eyes are seeing as much, do you think there could be some sort of um, usage of digital manipulation to make it more, besides just normal editing processes, um, do you think there could be a way of including AI or other forms of digital photo manipulation to make it more accurate to what your eyes saw in that moment? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think it would still need to be captioned as such. Um, so, you know, I don't think that, I think there's probably all kinds of different situations where that could be um, helpful or appropriate, but it would just need to be captioned that way so that people understand how that image was created. Um, you know, I haven't incorporated AI into my image making um, and I also am a pretty minimalist editor when it comes to the use of tools like Photoshop, but that's my personal artistic style or my personal kind of you know practice. And so different photographers are gonna have different levels of comfort um, and different interests. And so I think it's just gonna be um, really a matter of, of being honest and transparent. And I think that idea of honesty and transparency as well seems to go across your other works as well um, in terms of within photojournalism but in terms of um, like learning and educating as well um, having that level of honesty is important and I think photographs are a great way of doing that too um, providing beyond just like word of mouth to some degree you can provide 
photographic evidence. It's just, it's all more convoluted now with AI. But um, I think we have time for about two more quick questions. Um, so where do you feel most connected to nature? Like, is there an area you've gone to before or a place you think about often in your head or a place you try to return to frequently um, where you feel the most connected in some sense to the natural world? Yeah, it's a great question. And two places come to mind. And um, one is um, basically anytime I'm in a forest on the like eastern, in the eastern United States. And that's because I grew up in North Carolina and I've spent most of my life on the East Coast. And so um, like in the Apple, um, in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, any of these kind of beautiful uh, deciduous forests, I feel really connected. And that's really just, you know, because I have this strong sense of place uh, and connection. And I think that's an important thing that, you know, we acknowledge and recognize these connections that we have to the places we grew up. And I say that because um, we need people working on conservation everywhere. And oftentimes we're motivated to protect the places we love. And so spending outdoor time outdoors as a kid or as a young person in the place you grew up can really help build that connection. And then the other place is coral reefs. I can't get enough of snorkeling, diving, being out um, in the ocean. And I came to that late. I was really scared of the ocean growing up. I didn't spend a lot of time um, out in the ocean or by the beach. And I didn't, I was not a strong swimmer. And so it wasn't in really until my early 20s that I got comfortable in the water. And now I think about it all the time. It, it's tragic to that point as well um, about a newfound love of like diving, snorkeling um, with more frequent and more hazardous, it seems, um, climatic like ocean events, uh, hurricanes, even the waters uh, in the Gulf, like um, Gulf of Mexico, I, I think it was the Gulf of Mexico. Um, or it may have just been um, just east of Florida. Um, water temperatures were 90 plus degrees in the ocean, I think. Um, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it is a really, it is a really hard time. And it's going to be an increasingly hard time for coral reefs um, around the world. And that you're right, it is a tragic thing. And it's something that, you know, every time I think about it, it I get this really deep sense of kind of you know, hard, hard emotions and impending loss. Um, but I did read a book recently that was actually really great and it was called Life on the Rocks. I don't remember the author's name, but um, it was about the future of coral reefs and kind of some of the, the amazing science and innovations that are out there um, that are gonna help us help coral reefs at least somewhat adapt to these changes. Um, obviously we're going to lose a lot, but I think it's important that we also have these hope spots and, uh, you know, case studies that we can point to when we think about these big global changes. Yeah. Hope is definitely a necessity. Yeah. Um, so to end on just one more question, um, what advice would you give to young professionals, young college age students who are interested in potentially following some aspect of your career pathway, whether it's more photocentric, um, more education focused? I think I would say to follow your curiosity. You know, I, I think when I was younger, 
I really believed that my career path was going to be linear. Now when I talk about it looking back, it sounds pretty linear. I got a camera at 11 and I you know, did all of these things and took all of these steps and now I'm here. But it's actually been this really winding you know, path and it has, has been anything but linear. Um, and it's really been about taking opportunities when they're presented um, and following my curiosity, whether it's out to a jungle somewhere or back to school to do a master's degree or a PhD. And so I would say to follow your curiosity and be comfortable with the fact that you're not going to be able to plan everything and it'll work out. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time that we have today. Um, be sure to visit Gabby Salazar's website um, to view some of her photos taken over the years. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry.